Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 550, The Crucified God. How do love and suffering go hand in hand? Did God really forsake Jesus on the cross? And how do we live a life of waiting expectantly on the kingdom of God? This week, we're starting a three-part series on the cross, beginning with Matthew's account in chapter 27. Hello, everyone. Well, we're together again on episode 50 of this long journey through Matthew's gospel. But uh, for the next three weeks, we're really walking on holy ground because we're going to be talking in different perspectives and I think different layers about the crucifixion. Um. And because that's where chapter 27 takes us. But first, I want to give a little bit of, a, of an overview of the meaning of the cross. And then we'll, we'll look at the specifics of, of chapter 27. As many of you know, um, I have uh, for years been able to travel to a lot of parts of the world. And when I'm in ancient parts of the world, I love to go into old churches, uh, usually Catholic, sometimes Orthodox. I love to go where people have been worshiping Jesus for centuries. I, I love the presence of God there. And when I'm in a Catholic church, I'll often look at the, the stations of the cross. Um, there's a wonderful cathedral an hour from me, uh, St. Francis Cathedral in Santa Fe, and uh, there's this powerful, powerful uh, crucifix, a statue that is life-size, and sometimes I'll just go and, and contemplate that a little bit. Over two years ago, on our, our last journey of compassion, um, we were in Bogota, Colombia, and we went up the mountain on a tram to a marvelous old cathedral. And I found myself for a while uh, alone up there. And I started to walk through a garden, and there were statues of the various stations of the cross. And uh, I think they're going to put one up right now because it just, it just rocked me. I, I, I just stood still. I felt some tears come into my eyes. And I wanted to share that with you today. Now, over the next three weeks, we're going to just begin to enter into the great mystery of Christ on the cross. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit will take us experientially into what happened and what, frankly, is continuing to happen and will continue to happen through all eternity. To meditate on the cross is to enter into something that is without limit. It's part of what what Paul called the unsearchable riches. It's to enter into the mystery of Christ. So before we go into a more detailed look at Matthew's account in chapter 27, I want to lay a a short foundation. And again, we're going to come back at this somewhat in layers over these three weeks. First of all, the early church embraced the centrality of the cross, even though it was an object of horror and humiliation and and even disgust culturally, but they never stopped preaching about the cross, singing about the cross. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. The cross, I have become absolutely convinced, is the, the fullest revelation of God. We see it in the crucifixion and in the resurrection. The cross is a, is a Trinitarian event because God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If Jesus was not the, the second person of the Godhead, then that would mean that God is not directly involved, that he's detached somehow from God's his own eternal plan. Folks, the Trinity is profoundly at work at the cross. The third quick point I want to make is that the cross is a great cosmic event. The cross is God's great reclamation project. 
It is greater than the original creation itself because it is the recreation of all things, and what he recreates will be so for all eternity. The the cross exists in time. In fact, it it marks time, doesn't it? B.C. and A.D., before Christ, after his death. But it it is the eternal power of all things in the cosmos. Now, many of us come from an evangelical background, and I think especially in the 21st century, there's a tendency to emphasize individual spiritual experience, to emphasize each of our own personal piety and and growth. But I think this individualistic view of of discipleship, of the Christian faith, it it can cause an isolation, uh, an insulation, um, uh, away from from interest in the human struggle, in injustice, in dignity. And, and when we do this, when we get really focused on what the gospel means for me, I think it comes out of an inadequate understanding and time not spent in contemplation of the cross of Christ. You know, we have a great tendency as we're now coming into the culmination of the passion, and on the calendar we are too, we, we have a great tendency to move too quickly to the, the victory of the resurrection without first fully embracing the staggering reality of God being tortured on the cross. God being tortured on the cross. You know, I believe with all my heart that there's two great agents of transformation in all our lives. One of them is love, and one of them is suffering. And I think they're connected. I think if we avoid and do not experience suffering, it limits our love experience. And therefore, there's a limited transformation that happens in our lives. The cross is about the reconciliation of all things, and the restoration of all things. It it addresses head-on the magnitude and the power of sin and the forces of evil. God's act of restoration on the cross was infinitely costly. Folks, we're going to come back to this again a few times over the next couple of weeks, but hear me, at the cross, Jesus was not just saving individuals. He was recreating the world, in fact, recreating the entire cosmos. Let's briefly talk about the cross and the incarnation. We know that John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that this is the the classic incarnational scripture. But this incarnation is, is completed at the cross. We've said through this series again and again, we've used the word hypostasis, which means that Jesus at the same time was 100% God and 100% man. When Christ is called uh, the image of the invisible God, it means that this is God, and God is exactly like this. Jürgen Moltmann, a, a famous and remarkable theologian of the 20th century, said this, God is not greater, more generous than he is in this humiliation and self-surrender. He is not more powerful than he is in this helplessness. At his lowest point, his deepest humiliation at the cross, he is fully the eternal God. Now, part of the incarnation is that God participates in our human uh, trauma and pain. Remember, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who's slain for the world, who takes away the sins of the world. It is not that Christ has suffered instead of us. 
That is a, I, I do not believe that. And we hear it from different places. It is not that Christ has suffered instead of us. Rather, he has suffered on our behalf. Let me explain this. Christ did not suffer so that we might be exempt from suffering. Rather, it is so that our suffering can be connected to his, in some way be like his. The crucified Christ does not offer us a way around suffering, but a way through it. And bluntly, too often we have a gospel contrary to that. The gospel, the cross, is not about substitution, but about Christ saving companionship with us in the midst of suffering. Too often the gospel's stripped of suffering. We we focus on the resurrection. We almost like to bypass the crucifixion so quickly we can get to Easter. We need to begin to understand ourselves and the church as a community that suffers with, that willingly bears the stigma of the passion in service to others. A Canadian theologian, Douglas John Hall, said this, The basic distinguish, uh, distinction between religion and Christian faith is a propensity of religions to avoid suffering, to have light without darkness, vision without trust and risk, hope without an ongoing dialogue with despair, in short, Easter without Good Friday. This is why the incarnation and understanding of it is so important if we're going to embrace the cross. Another aspect is what's been called the axis of love. In fact, Brian Zond often refers to this term, and and any of you who come to our conference, May 11 to 14, uh, will hear Brian, and I know he will talk about this access of love because it is central to a beautiful gospel. But I want to quote from someone else, a, a theologian I like very much, Father John Bear. He said, when the Apostle Paul speaks of its, quote, breadth and length and height and depth, that's Ephesians 3, St. Gregory, one of the early church fathers, sees Paul as inscribing the figure of the cross into the very structure of the universe. Created by the God revealed through the cross, the transcendent power of the eternal, timeless God manifested in the passion of Christ is the same power that upholds all creation, so that the cross is indeed the still eternal and timeless axis axis around which the world rotates. Boy, just think on that quote a little bit. It is so full. The crucified Christ now fills the universe with his cruciform love. This is the shape of Christ's love, of God's love. Beloved, He does not passively witness pain and suffering and abuse and oppression. Right now, we're confronted daily by more and more and more horrors of abuse, oppression, causing suffering and pain in Ukraine. Know that he does not passively witness it, but because of the cross, he enters into the suffering, living the sorrow for all and with all. And for all time. The cross transcends time and space. The entire cosmos revolves around this axis of love. Now, a, a thematic term that has been through this series, and must always be when we are considering Christ, is kenosis. It means self-emptying. And, and we know that at the cross, Paul tells us that Christ emptied himself. Could it be that Christ, hanging on the cross in physical and spiritual agony, is the most perfect revelation of God's glory? I do believe 
that kenosis is the prime expression of his nature. We said that the, the, the bedrock foundational beatitude for Matthew's entire gospel is, is chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. And maybe the cross calls us to be poor in spirit by following Jesus into his self-giving, self-emptying, canonic love. Kenosis is the way that God works. Canonic love is who God is. Let me say that again. Canonic love is who God is. So here's a question before we begin to look at Matthew's account. What if Jesus did not go to the cross and die in order to change the Father's mind about us, but rather he went to the cross to change our minds about the Father? In fact, I think his whole life came to change our minds about the Father. We're going to look at the difference between those two views more in the next two sessions. Well, with that background, because as I said, we're entering into holy ground, now let's look at Matthew's account. First of all, we see the king on a cross. Verse 32, as they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. The the phrase, as they went out, stuck out to me. They were going outside the walls of the city. He was taken outside the city. In the Old Testament, what happened was in Leviticus, you can read all about it, the, the sins of the nation were imputed. They laid hands on a goat who was then driven outside the camp to, to wander in the wilderness. That's what, where we get the word scapegoat. Following Jesus, truly following him, don't be surprised if it takes you outside the camp, if it takes you outside the walls of of common opinion, popular opinion, group opinion. As usual, Matthew's account is more bare bones than Mark's. We've talked about that before. After the flogging, it's likely that Jesus no longer had the strength to carry the cross. So in Mark's account, he says this, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, Cyrene is modern Libya, and Simon was either a Gentile coming in to do business, or I think more likely, but we don't know for sure, he came to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Athanasius, one of the church fathers who I just love, especially what he's written on the incarnation of Christ. But Athanasius says this, Simon, a man, bore the cross to signify to all the Lord underwent, not just for his own death, but that of men. He thinks it's very significant that a man partnered with Jesus, as it were, in carrying the cross. Now, we see in this seemingly chance meeting, we've got Simon walking along and the, and the Roman soldiers force him to carry this cross. It, it seems like a chance meeting, but if you look closely, you'll see both the sovereign purposes of God and his great grace to Simon. The humiliation and I think fear of being forced to bear Christ's cross in the midst of the jeering and the soldiers, it resulted in Simon becoming a disciple. How do we know this? Because Mark tells us that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. This was a a significant point of identification for the church. Because, for example, when Paul is greeting members of the church personally at the end of Romans in chapter 16, he indicates that Rufus was a member, a significant member of the church in Rome. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. So, you see what the Lord has done. He's taken this seemingly random incident. And it wasn't random to him at all. And used that 
for the salvation of Simon and his family and an impartation and their life coming and shared with the church. Remember that things that we think are random are not random in the purposes of God. Let's go on. Verse 33 and 34, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was given often in crucifixion uh, to, to uh, the condemned to help dull the pain, but Jesus refused this. Uh, he wanted nothing at all to limit what he was experiencing and what was happening. I want you to be aware of how prophetic the Psalms are. Here's Psalm 69, again, a thousand years before what's happening. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Remarkable. So much of what is happening is this direct fulfillment of prophetic scripture. Verse 35, and when they crucified him, crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Um, isn't it interesting? And when they crucified him, the most significant event in history is spoken in just six words. You'll notice this with all four gospel writers. They did not want to focus on the physical pain of the crucifixion. They, they held the crucifixion in such high honor that all four of them approached it with great reverence. They were, they were cautious and reserved about it. They refused to play upon the emotions. Now, by the way, dividing uh, the condemned's clothes was a common practice among Roman soldiers at a crucifixion. But at another level, it was again fulfilling prophecy. The two great prophetic passages, although there's many, but the two great revolving around the crucifixion are Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. So the soldiers divide his clothes and David saw it a thousand years earlier. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That's exactly what they did. Psalm 22 points to the whole passion story, but it points even beyond it, as we're going to see. In Psalm 22, we see public humiliation, the mocking and shaking of heads by scoffers, the pain, the terrible thirst, the piercing of his hands and feet and casting lots for his garments. It's incredible. And it was all anticipated a millennia earlier. Psalm 22, 14 and 15, just to give you a little more. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I would encourage you this week to look at Psalm 22 for yourself. So we go on, verse 37, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Condemned criminals often carried a sign uh, around their neck with the charges on their way to the cross. This sign was then nailed to the cross over their heads. It, it, was, a, it was two things. It was a deterrent. It was to scare the others, to the, the citizens to obey Rome and not cross them. And secondly, it was intended as a mockery. There's another level here, though. That sign said King of the Jews, and I think it reflects Pilate's understanding of the nature of Jesus' kingship. It's a socio-political perspective. We talked about that last week. Jesus died profoundly misunderstood by both the Romans and the Jews. So again, we see his, his deep identification with all who have died unjustly. He's identifying with what's going on in Eastern Europe right now, for example. Now, this inscription is, is uh, over the cross, and it reaches 
beyond the understanding of all those who, who put it up there and all those who walk by it, because forever it stands before history as the proclamation of his true kingship. Joseph Ratzinger, he wrote this, The cross is Jesus' throne from which he draws the world to himself. From this place of total self-sacrifice, from this place of truly divine love, he reigns as the true king in his own way. Hmm. Well, let's look at the next section, the mockery. Verse 37, then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. <clears throat> Excuse me, as, as we saw last week, Matthew uh, specifically uses the same word here as he used for Jesus Barabbas. It's a word for revolutionaries, for rebels, for insurrectionists. It also, again, goes right back to that other prophetic passage, Isaiah 53, verse 12. He wrote, he was counted among the rebels. Verse 39 and 40, those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save, it, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. What they're saying in mockery is in fact true. They are declaring truth without knowing it. His messianic authority does mean the end of the temple. He is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. He has saved others and will continue to do so. It's because of the truth of this that it's the very reason Jesus cannot come down from the cross because the cross is fulfilling God's purpose. It is not a lack of power or authority. It is unwavering commitment to the great cosmic purpose of God. By the way, they said, if you're God, save yourself. These are the exact words that Satan used in the temptation. <laughs> Again, we see Matthew using scripture like bookends. Verse 42 and 43, he saved others. He cannot save himself. This is them still mocking. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now and then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants to, for he said, I am God's son. When Jesus does not come down from the cross, Israel sees this as proof and continues to see it as proof that he was a false messiah. However, the church sees this same thing, that he refused to come down from the cross until everything was finished. They see this same thing as proof that he was a true Messiah. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the fulfillment of the law. He told us that in, in Matthew 5. He was the suffering servant of Isaiah. Isaiah 51 through 53, and of the prophets, and the righteous innocent one of the Psalms. <laughs> he said, I am God's son. <laughs> you know what is so ironic? These are the final words of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders in Matthew's gospel. They're declaring truth again and don't know it. Well, now let's look at the death of Jesus. I have found preparing the last couple of weeks through this climactic section of, of the Passion, I found it very profound, at times very moving. I, I referred to that last week, and, and never more so than this past week as I've really focused in on the cross and, and the death of Jesus. The first thing that we see is the darkness Verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Now, most commentators see this as literal and historical darkness. It wasn't a solar eclipse because we know the stage of the moon was, uh, was determined by Passover, and that wouldn't allow for uh, a solar eclipse. 
It was a supernatural darkness that that looks back to uh, when Moses uh, said, let my people go to Pharaoh, and there were ten plagues. In Exodus 10, when darkness came over the whole land, the old order, which was Pharaoh and Egypt, was soon about to come to an end. Now, there is a minority of commentators that think Matthew was presenting this metaphorically. I think it was a literal darkness. Verse 30, uh, 46, and about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This might be the most familiar verse in Matthew's entire crucifixion account. Did God the Father forsake his son at this very moment? What's the relationship of of this verse to the crucifixion psalm, Psalm 22? If the Father didn't forsake the Son, then what is going on? Well, first of all, it's interesting. This verse is found only in Matthew and Mark's account. Luke and John are very, very different. They they reflect Jesus' unwavering trust, unbroken fellowship with the Father. In Luke, it's, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He's speaking to the Father in John when he says, it is finished. So once again, Matthew shows us both the significance and the totality of the incarnation. The incarnation is deeply identificational. And therefore, it is about sharing deeply in the human experience. I want to share some thoughts with you from from Bishop Ware. God saves us by identifying himself with us. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, knows us from the inside. At the cross, this is carried to the final limit. Jesus shares not only in the fullness of human life, and we've talked about that multiple times through this entire gospel, now he shares in the fullness of human death. In two weeks, we're going to look at that more deeply. The fullest meaning of the passion is not found uh, just in Jesus' physical suffering, but much more in his spiritual suffering. Jesus experienced the depth of the worst of the human condition. On the cross, he experiences isolation, abandonment, loneliness, failure, rejection, No wonder in Gethsemane, as as this was coming upon him, he said, my soul is extremely sorrowful even to death. At this moment, on the cross, Jesus is fully identifying by experiencing. It's not theoretical. By experiencing all the despair and emotional pain of humanity at this moment, Jesus is truly experiencing the spiritual death of separation from God the Father. St. Ambrose said this, one of the early church fathers, In taking upon himself a human soul, he also took upon himself the affections of of a soul. As God, he was not distressed. But as a human... He was capable of being distressed. It was not as God that he died, but as man. As human, therefore, he speaks on the cross, bearing within him our terrors. But there's another level or way to understand this verse besides the profound identification. And in it, Matthew is showing us once again how central that prophetic Psalm 22 is. Because Jesus, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was directly quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. It's the only time in this whole gospel that Jesus 
addresses God as God and not as Father. Now, I want you to understand something here. In the oral culture of first century Israel, where the majority were illiterate, people knew much of the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, by memory. They didn't read, so it was learned and passed on through memory. So when the opening of a psalm was recited, it was referring to the entire psalm. You may think, well, that seems like a stretch. It isn't. Even in our literate society, if I take if I take Psalm 23 and I say, the Lord is my shepherd, you go, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, etc. Now, we've already seen how how prophetically precise Psalm 22 is. But now we see a progression. Jesus truly feels abandoned and rejected. He feels that truly. But the psalm he is quoting to express that takes him and us beyond the feelings of abandonment to reality, a deep reality. Because if you read through the progression of Psalm 22, you come to verse 24. It starts with, why have you forsaken me? But it goes through a progression that culminates in verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one, nor has he turned away his face from me. And when I cried out to him, he heard me. Contrary to what I learned, contrary to what I used to preach, the Father did not turn his face away from the Son. There was never separation. He felt it, but the reality is revealed in this psalm. At that moment of complete identification with all of us in our despair and our isolation, Jesus on the cross takes us beyond the feelings of being left alone, of not being heard by God, to the reality. Let me read that verse again. Nor has he turned away his face from me, and when I cried out to him, he heard me. Verse 50, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. All four Gospels say this, that he gave up his spirit or yielded his spirit. It's just a different translation for the same word. Throughout Matthew's account, he's showing us that Jesus was in control. Remember, we talked about that with his arrest. Let's move on. Verse 50 to 53, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. The early church understood, really they just presumed, that the invisible spiritual reality and the visible physical realm were directly connected, inseparable. And so we see here harmonized, don't we? As he dies, the veil physically is torn. We don't know if it was the outer veil. If it was, it was 80 feet high. If it was the inner, it was 30 feet high. But it was huge. Notice it was torn from top to bottom, not bottom up. It couldn't have been any human who would have torn it if it's top to bottom. Now, there's, there's really two meanings for this. First is that when the, when the veil is torn, the old temple system is now over. The authority has been transferred from the old system to Christ who's soon to be risen. The kingdom that was exclusive to Israel The curtain is open. That exclusivity is now over, which leads us to the second meaning. The way to God's presence has been opened up to everyone by means of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. 
The next thing that happened when he died, the earth shook, the rocks split. You, only Matthew has this detail. It's like, it's like he can't wait until Easter. Jesus' death has repercussions for the earth. I told you the cross stands at the center of all the cosmos, and the earth was moved deeply by his death. It impacts even the rocks. And thirdly, this is fascinating. The tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Once again, only Matthew has this. And and that can be puzzling. But this much we can understand. That in Jesus' death, Death itself was defeated. (coughs) Pardon me. St. Augustine, another church father, said, He died because it was expedient that by his death he might kill death. God died that an exchange might be effected by a kind of heavenly contract that man might not see death. Oh, what an exchange. Isn't that a great quote? What we see here, what Matthew is telling us is that Jesus' death has the power to open graves. That his death ends the old world of death and opens up a new world of everlasting life. We were reading the Apostles' Creed in my house the other day, a bunch of us having a meal together. And I love the Apostles' Creed, and it's often part of my morning time with the Lord. But remember, there's a line there that says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. This verse of Matthew's reaches into the past because they're raised from the past. Just as it will reach into the future, Jesus rules the cosmos beyond time and space. Frederick Bruner wrote this, The death of Jesus reaches out as far horizontally into history as it reaches up vertically into eternity. Verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. What scoffers had just said in mockery, now the soldiers confess in faith. Just as for, in Matthew's account, just as the, as the Gentile magi were the first to honor Jesus' birth, now the Gentile soldiers are the first to honor his death. That's not accidental. Again, I've told you repeatedly, Matthew is so careful in how he structures his gospel. You know, in Mark's account, he speaks of one soldier who says that. But for Matthew, it was a group of soldiers. And this takes us back once again to Matthew, uh, pardon me, to Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. What the soldiers said, the world was going to say. Verse 55, many women were there watching from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. We see again that although the men scattered, there were women who remained faithful. Mary Magdalene, she was known as the the first among the apostles. And we see their faithfulness right to the end. So, I, I want to ask you this question. If Jesus and the Gospels honor women so consistently, why does much of the church so often limit their role, thereby dishonoring them? I'll leave you with that question. Let's move on to the burial.
starting at verse 57. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. He then rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. All four Gospels record Joseph's action. Mark 15. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, that's the Sanhedrin, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Can you imagine the courage that took? In, in, in the darkness of that day, in the, in the three public executions, he went. Luke's account, verse, uh, chapter 13 Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph who, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. Once again, we see more detail. John chapter 19 gives us another important detail. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of fear of the Jews, asked Pilate. He overcame his fear, folks, right there. Asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. And here's another detail. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds. So, here's a few features. Joseph was a disciple. In fact, he and Nicodemus are the only disciples who came to claim the body. Secondly, Joseph was a rich man. I think this is interesting, because the last rich man that Matthew presented was the rich young ruler. And it seemed things weren't very good for the rich. Remember, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, at the end of this crucifixion account, we see it's a rich man, and he's recorded in a very positive way. So there's a message, I think, for the rich who somehow think they're disqualified from from being serious disciples because they're rich. They're not. What we see here is that discipled money, money that is under discipleship to Jesus, can honor Jesus. This is a really important thing. Jesus, or Joseph's love, motivated his care for Jesus. But it was his wealth that allowed it to happen. Now, thirdly, there's significant archaeological and historical evidence that Joseph saved Jesus' body from being thrown into a mass grave. And sometimes that mass grave was Gehenna. We've talked about that, that outside the city, and it continually burns, and it was used as a, as a picture of, of hell. And the Romans either did this or otherwise, sometimes they left the bodies just up on the cross to decompose. So Joseph saved him from that. The last section, the, the guards at the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last deception would be worse than the first. Then Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. 
The powers of darkness are still profoundly at work here. The powers are always trying to make sure that Jesus is defeated. And if the grave can be secured for three days, this means a defeat for Jesus. So for them, everything depends on this security plan. The might of Rome and of Jewish religious power have come together to keep Jesus down. So to wrap this up, Philippians 2, the great passage of kenosis and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus kept being obedient. He kept trusting the Father up to and through the point of death. Jesus never fought back. He never even spoke back. From Luke, we, we see that he kept forgiving. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is canonic love. Canonic love is the way the kingdom works, and it is who God is. I believe with all my heart what I said earlier. I believe that Jesus did not die to change the Father's mind about us. He came to change our minds about the Father. In Matthew, we see the details of how this is acted out. Now, next week, we're going to look at what was accomplished at the cross. Uh, We're going to uh, go into a discussion of how the church has understood what happened at the cross over the past 2,000 years. And it's going to lead us into some different views and two very, very different views of what was happening at the cross. God bless you. If you just wait a minute or two, Tim and I will sit down together and talk through some of the implications of what I've shared with you today. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, that was excellent. Uh, I, I actually, I texted my wife partway through that teaching today to say you wouldn't believe what he just said. I it just there was so much meat in there today, and I would encourage our listeners. Uh, this is one you definitely want to revisit again and again. I mean, obviously, the importance of the subject matter, the the, the cross, uh, is so central to our faith uh, that we'll never plumb the depths of it. But this one. Man, there was a lot there. I thank you. Well, thank you. Um, hey, before we get into some questions and discussion and stuff here, I just I wanted to uh, tell our listeners about a new program we've got. It's called Monthly Giving Champions. And uh, some of you are monthly giving champions and you didn't know it, uh, but have been for a while. We have a number of people all over the globe who give to Impact Nations every single month, uh, some of them even every other week or so. Uh, And it is that giving that really empowers us to get the work done that we do. If you're a regular listener to the Impact Nations podcast here, you know the work that we do. We are uh, rescuing people from incredibly dangerous situations uh, and... Uh, we are getting them back on their feet, getting them set up for uh, long-term thriving, uh, getting them the business training, skills training, uh, and uh, counseling and things like that, uh, having come out of uh, forced prostitution, sexual abuse, um, gang life, things like that. Uh, and uh, as our teams interact with folks, they tell them about Jesus, and they demonstrate the power of this gospel. They demonstrate the power of the cross uh, by rescuing people from, from danger. Uh, And all of that happens because of our monthly donors. That's what helps us get the job done each and every day. So we thank you to our monthly giving champions, but we also would invite you, if you're not yet a monthly giving champion, uh, we would invite you to come and join us. Uh, When you give monthly, you really are uh, setting us up uh, long into the future. It really helps us to budget, to know how much we can get done in a year. Um, It 
it brings stability to this ministry so we can continue to grow and thrive. And God has been so good over the years. Impact Nation has been around since 2005, mm-hmm. uh, and we continue to see God's hand in this ministry. We continue to see incredible growth. Uh, you know, you hear us tell stories all the time about our amazing partners all over the world who truly are demonstrating the kingdom of God, demonstrating the gospel both supernaturally and practically. Uh, and again, that can't happen without our monthly giving champions. So if you'd like to learn more about about becoming a monthly giving champion, you can head to impactnations.com slash monthly, and uh, you can become a monthly giving champion right there. That's great. That's uh, great. All right. Let's let's talk the cross. Actually, I, first I want to talk about uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, you, uh, as you were reading the passage, I, I'm sure our, our listeners can attest to this too. There are times... Uh, very often when reading scripture that suddenly something jumps out to you, a phrase jumps out that hasn't before. And, you know, it's just sometimes the Holy Spirit just bringing your attention to something that he wants to, to reveal to you. Uh, and today the phrase that jumped out to me was this, co- this concept of Joseph had been waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. And so I just wanted to talk for a few minutes about what it means to be a people who wait expectantly for the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus came at the at the beginning of his ministry. He announced the kingdom is here, uh, and it has been here ever since. He, the, and the cross really was the kind of the mark of of becoming kingdom people, being able to operate in the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Um, what? What do you think about when you think about that phrase waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> a couple of things. Scripture calls us uh both Peter and Paul uh talk about living um and I will transliterate a little bit mm-hmm. that uh people of the kingdom live hopefully. Mm. And and biblical hope, as we've said here before, is not, oh, I I I wish something would happen. Yeah. It is a a waiting with certainty. So at one level that, that phrase calls us to live our lives and therefore align our lives according to that hope. Mm. Now the kingdom has come, but it hasn't fully come. Yeah. It is increasing. I've watched that in, you know, in my 45 years, things that I thought could never happen, happen. Yeah. And um, so it is increasing. It's not fully here, but it's here. And I think that that there's that aspect. The other, the third thing, briefly, is, and I want to talk some more about that sometime in the next few months. I want to revisit something about what does it mean to live prophetically, Mm -hmm. to be a prophetic people. And um, I think a prophetic people are like Joseph, who are expectant, who are not just hoping in our modern sense, but with a certainty and therefore aligning their lives. Indeed, and I think expectation leads to action, whereas hope uh, can be interpreted as a passive thing, sitting around waiting for something to happen. I hope yeah. it happens soon. Yeah. Whereas when you're living expectantly, you're, you are walking in the knowledge that it is happening. It is the reality. So yeah, uh, good. it drove Joseph to take action because he knew, this is what I've been waiting for. This is the kingdom that I've been seeking. And we're back to that verse, First Peter 1, 3. He's given us a living hope. Mm. Indeed. Good point. Uh, all right. Let's talk about verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This okay. is... Uh, you're not going to say it in Aramaic? <laughs> no, your Aramaic's much better than mine. Yeah, not really. <laughs> um, this is a very often quoted verse. You made a point that it may, may be one of the best known. Um, and I think it's often quoted, I, I wouldn't say out of context, but perhaps... Um, misinterpreted is, yeah. is I think the best phrase I can use there. Uh, and it's really been very much a building block for uh, some of what you're going to talk about next week, I suspect, which is PSA, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, 
this idea that the father did in fact turn his face away because he he can't look upon sin and there was so much sin upon piled upon christ at the time that father had to turn his face away uh today you rejected that theology yes um why is it important for us to have a correct understanding and you've laid it out today very well but why is it important for us to have a correct understanding of why why christ uttered those words on the cross okay um Again, just some random thoughts yep. here. If the father would turn his face away from his own son, then surely he would turn his face away from me. Mm. And therefore, I am back into a meritorious relationship. Do I please him or don't please him? Right. Is he close or is he far? So that's the first thing. Yeah. The second thing is, it is is profoundly untrinitarian. We have a God who is three persons in one. Mm-hmm. And inseparable for all of history. We've talked about perichoresis, the, the interaction. Mm-hmm. That would absolutely rend that relationship. Mm. Uh, it, there's almost like a schizophrenia about it. Yeah. You know, that the... God can't reject God, and God doesn't want to reject God. And I think that we'll talk a lot more about it next week. But but if we have a wrong understanding, then we, of that verse, then we have a wrong understanding of what it means to be the beloved, what it means to be sons and daughters. Yeah. Good. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting more of that next week. Uh, finally, just talking about victory real real quick, and I think you're going to talk about that a little bit more next week you too. Uh, but the nature of victory that we see on the cross is, of course, very different from the victory that people were assuming. You know, They were waiting for a, a political king to come and overthrow the Romans. Uh, instead, victory is won through death. Mm-hmm. And yet, and you alluded to this a few times today, we tend to, sometimes we want to fast forward past Good Friday and get ourselves to Easter. Yep. Uh, okay, so a two-part question. First is, and maybe it's splitting hairs, but is the victory over death, does that happen at the cross or does it happen at the resurrection where, in fact, he is raised from dead, thus saying, ha, death, you ain't got nothing on me? Oh, that's a very good point. The answer is yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, but there's a third yes because we've right. got the day between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Indeed. We're going to get there in a Saturday. Few weeks too. <laughs> We're going to get there too. Uh, so there's victory in all, all three. Okay. Uh, next question is we don't, we don't talk about victory in the context of suffering very much in the church. Uh, we talk about victory, you know, he's coming on the clouds, you know, the trumpet will sound, things like that. We, we use language like that. That's, that is also biblical. Um, mm-hmm. How did we shift? It, presumably the early church spent a lot of time gazing at the cross and, and meditating on the cross and the victory that came through the cross. Uh, and yet when we talk about victory, we use different language. How's that shifted over time, and wow. how can we get it back? Well, I don't know how it shifted over time, but it did. Uh, but not exclusively. Okay. The, you know, some a lot of the authors that I'm, I'm reading, I just finished a book on the weekend by one who would would never bypass the yeah. suffering. Uh, most of my favorite authors would never bypass it, and it's not because they're all about suffering. It's because it's, in their reading, you can just hear their depth of personal experience with Christ. We do not, our flesh does not like to suffer. We don't like to lose. Mm -hmm. We don't like to feel like we're missing out. And too easily it has crept in, well, I think it's come marching in to too much of the church. Mm -hmm. He came so that you can be all you want to be. Uh, and on. I don't need to go on and on on that. I've, I mentioned that sometimes. Yeah. I, I think it has come, and I alluded to this today, it has come from not meditating upon contemplating the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, I really do take time, and it is not morbid. I understand more and more of his remarkable love 
And I love how identificational he is, especially right now. I'm sure like many of our viewers, I uh, I tear up over Ukraine. And yeah. sometimes I can't watch. Last night, I, I turned away. And they said, this may be too strong for some of you. And I thought, well, and then I started to look, oh, my word, I don't need to see that. Um, and so if I don't have a strong identificational view of the cross and of Christ, then I find myself praying, God, where were you? What's the matter? Mm, yeah. He's right there. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's a massive question that, of course, humanity often asks is, where is God in the midst of all yes. this? Um, and there's there's a hint of accusation of God has left us to our own devices. He's, he's abandoned us. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, coming, coming back to your teaching on verse 46 today, I that was really profound for me to understand that there are a few levels here. Yes, he's he's pointing us back to Psalm 22 and the prophetic, uh, mm-hmm. the prophetic psalm that it is, but also he is entering into the full human experience. Yes. And whether or not that's reality, in that moment, it's his reality. It's his reality. Yeah. Yes, yes, and yes. Yeah, that's so important. Well, we're going to do some more of this next week. I'm looking forward to it. Um, and I, the, we're just going to leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us this week. Uh, just a reminder, uh, head out to, uh, to impactnations.com slash monthly to learn more about becoming a monthly giving champion. Uh, we need your help. That's all there is to it. Uh, and we'd love for you to join us, join the Impact Nations family. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Uh, we will see you again next week. We're here on uh, YouTube, Facebook, every 6 p.m. Thursday, Mountain Time. Uh, or uh, you can get the audio delivered to your device of choice uh, just head to your favorite podcast app and look up impact nations podcast and you will find us and that way you can listen every single week without having to go find it and let me just say that i hope to see you next month oh well, i was just assuming be- everybody that's listening at is the already beautiful registered. gospel conference <laughs> i i would love to see you because this is sort of a flavor of some of the kind mm, of teaching that yep. we're going to be exposed yeah, that's, to that's a good point yeah if this stuff is uh has captured your interest, uh, be here because there's going to be a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you again next week. God bless bless you. Bye.